Good morning. If you'll meet me at Luke chapter 7, we will read a couple of verses beginning at verse 11. Luke chapter 7. Luke 7 verse 11, I'm reading from ESV, and it reads such, Soon afterward he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still, and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. That is God's word. Would you join me in prayer? Oh Lord, how great it is to know you, to be saved by you, and to be loved by you. And even now, Lord, I pray that you would come and enable us to receive from your word, that you would stir us up in our affections for you, that we would hear, see, and do all according to your good pleasure. I pray today that you would love someone with my words. In Jesus' name, amen. And so we've spent the summer as a church going through the minor prophets. If you were to kind of give a general summary of what we've seen, God spoke to Israel for the most part, some others, and and, and God basically said, uh, sin has done a work in the world. I have a plan to redeem and restore. I'm raising up a redeemer, and you are not him. And if you will trust me, I will send him and he will save you, restore you, rescue you, and give you an exuberant joy that will overflow. And the response was typically to that message that they would kill whoever was preaching that and embrace whoever was giving the false message that served their idols or their desires. But that was generally the minor prophets, that they point to Jesus and all that God was going to do through him so they looked forward And now we're heading to a series in Colossians, which shows us all the fullness and and, and, and God's work in Christ and in the church, and I would say through the church. And so kind of coming out of one series and into another, there's a pressing question that should really come to us. If we've looked forward to Jesus, and in some ways we're going to be looking back to the cross, we also need to be looking at how does the church point to Jesus? Because if we're really getting what's being said through the prophets and we're really getting what's being said to Colossians, it has to get personal and practical or we're really not getting it. There has to be a point where we say, how does Grace City point to Jesus? How does my discipleship community point to Jesus? How does my marriage point to Jesus? How does my work point to Jesus? If Christ is the center and and the fullness of everything and everything we do is from him and for him and through him, then we need to look at how can we get practical with the love of God that's been given to us. 
One of the worst things you can have is somebody who has Christ, has all of his riches, and forgets where they came from. Uh, I don't watch sports a lot, as you already heard, but there's a certain story that I've been following about a certain NBA player. You may have heard of him. His name is Demetrius Jamel Morant, or Jay Morant, right? Plays for the Memphis Brazil. Here we go. Ja. Thank you for interrupting. Ja Morant. Okay, we got our Hebrew Israelite ter terminology for the day. John Morant, I've seen him on Instagram and Snapchat videos, is a player who was drafted in 2019, came to the Memphis Grizzlies, got a four year contract for $39.6 million. And yet, in the 2022 to 23 season, he's been famous for all the wrong reasons. Not because he's an MVP, not because he plays ball or defense well, not because he, he gives back and does a lot of charity work. He is famous for his misbehavior and character unbecoming of someone who would be a sports celebrity. There was one event that occurred where I believe they paid, played the Indiana Pacers and there were some members of his, they say his associates, basically gangs that he was hanging out with that attacked an opposing NBA team. There's another situation where he was seen uh, with a gun in a nightclub on IG. There's another time I forgot which other gang he was hanging with. I don't know if he was trying to be a blood or crip, but we live in a society where celebrities want to buy their way into gangs, even though they didn't come from that. And so he's been all over social media for all of the wrong reasons. And yet, here is a young man that comes from a good home with good parents and a good education making good money and forgetting about where he came from and what he has. Worse than John Moran is a Christian who forgets who they are in Jesus. One of the worst, most chaotic, dysfunctional things is a church member who comes to church and leaves Jesus at home, who forgets their identity in Christ and all that God has given us to do his will on earth. And so when we fail to forget our identity in Christ, we wreak havoc. Here's how. It doesn't have to be that you do something wrong. It's just that you cease to be a conduit of God's goodness and mercy in the culture around you. Church, we are God's plan A for Philadelphia. God's primary means to send grace to Philadelphia is not through the mayor's office. It's not through activism. It is through his church. The lack of amen said so much. So that's why we got to preach the whole text. Here's the big idea today. Since Christ alone is Lord over both life and death, we are called to serve the least and the lowest in a way that brings jubilant praise to Jesus. Let me say it again. Since Christ alone is Lord over both life and death, we are called to serve the least and the lowest in a way that brings jubilant praise to Jesus. Our text has us this morning at a funeral gathering at a place called Nain. There's a large crowd accompanied by a woman who is weeping and mourning. She is a widow who is leaving out of the city gate to bury her only son. 
The text says soon afterward, because Jesus has previously in the same chapter performed a miracle for a centurion where he has healed his servant. And now afterwards, Christ and his disciples in a great crowd come to a collision point with another great crowd that is coming out to mourn the death of an only son. The text says as he draws near to the gate of the town, this dead man is being carried out on a bier. It's not really a coffin or a casket because it's not closed. They, in Jewish tradition, they would have, he probably died that day and they were wrapped him up and they are bringing him out to bury him on what might be like a cot. It's open and they're carrying him out and they're going to bury him and this widow is surrounded by a considerable crowd of mourners. They're weeping and, and the best way they can support her is to cry and have the ministry of presence with her. And before Jesus gets to her, she's living in the moment of devastation. The text says she's a widow, so she's already lost a husband at some point. And now she's lost the only son she's had in a culture that esteems women for having children. In a culture that a woman's economic stability comes from having a husband or a son. In a culture where widows are typically synonymous with the lowest or, or, or the most destitute people in society. So the woman that we see here is more than just somebody who is mourning. She is socioeconomically unstable and devastated. Spiritually, emotionally, mentally, she is a wreck. Death has done a work on this woman and she has lost it all and the best people can do is mourn for her because the culture says after this you're done. You're just going to look for help wherever you can find it, but you're alone and you're isolated, and death has done a work. From the time of Adam in the garden, death has done a work on all of us. It is inescapable. Death pervades our culture. It pervades our genetics, our social structures. Wherever you see sin, sin gives a rise to death, and death is more than just physical separation from life. Death has all types of forms, and it works, and it touches us in so many ways. Romans chapter 5 says, sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people. And how we deal with death, how we look at Christ to teach us how we approach, how death works in society, tells us everything. There was a famous apologist I used to listen to, and he used to always say, however you see the world, you have to test your worldview by three questions. Number one, you have to ask, where did we come from? Number two, you have to ask, how did we get so messed up? And number three, you have to ask, what is being done to fix us? So whether you're an atheist, agnostic, Christian, Muslim, we have to process that. And oftentimes the modern culture gives us answers that are falling short of God's grace and his goodness because the culture would have us use death to celebrate death. In other words, we, we ignore it or we celebrate it when we see it. We see uh, a brokenness in gender, in sex, in identity. We see it in our social structures. We see it in political parties. And so what we learn to do rather than encounter it and get vulnerable and change it, we start to celebrate it as though that is how things were always meant to be. It happens in society. It happens in churches, unfortunately. The cultural ethic of our day is build a better self. 
If you can only love yourself better, if you can only have better experiences, better relationships, the, the, the main message of Instagram is basically cut off all negative people, love yourself, take a lot of pictures, and you'll feel better. Have your best life now. I know some of you are on Instagram, but you still got the same problem. <laughs> we all have a problem where we want to be celebrated in our brokenness rather than transformed. We all have this issue where rather than looking for God to do miracles in our life, we look for people to celebrate us in the mess of our situation. And it comes in the church in so many ways because that individual mindset wrecks American churches. Let me tell you how. Pastoral burnout and member dropout. I read an article the other day, and they talked about the amount of men that are burning out in ministry. And one of the reasons why is they can't just be pastors. They've got to be HR. They've got to communicate. They've got to be counselors and secretaries. And, and what also, often, often happens is the pastor is trying to get Christians to think, feel, and do like Christians. And they're trying to play the Holy Spirit. For people who have one foot in, one foot out. One more Sunday, somebody doesn't greet me. One more Sunday, they don't sing the songs I want. One more Sunday, and I'm gone. And so therefore, you have pastors who chase people who really don't want to be there for Jesus. They want to be celebrated in the pew. And it wrecks churches. I'm not talking about just this church. I'm talking about any church you can go to because we are sinners and we are selfish. I'm talking about how death works in our culture. It works in so many ways that you can become so desensitized to it that you just call it normal. Sometimes I think one of the worst sins we commit is that we consider things normal that God says should always be abnormal, that should always be dealt with, that should always be prayed away, but instead we say there's nothing that can be done about it. And so Christ comes and he approaches this widow. And the Bible says in verse 13, just in the beginning, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. Don't go beyond that. Imagine the bewilderment. Imagine the moment that a crowd approaches you and you are crying and weeping, having lost your only son, your remaining members of your family, and now someone says, do not weep. Don't read the text too quickly because there's a promise of action from Jesus, but there's also a question from the widow, what are you about to do? Why would you tell me not to weep because I've got nothing left but my tears? I've got nothing left but my mourning. And Jesus says, do not weep. And he comes up and he touches the beer and that stops the funeral profession. And it says in verse 14, and the bear stood still, and Jesus says, young man, I say to you, arise. And a dead man sits up and walks, and the scripture says, Jesus gives him to his mother. God restores to her what no other person could. And that fast, a crowd of mourners are transformed into a crowd of witnesses. This is no accident that it has happened. This has happened in God's providence. God intended to do this. Luke is trying to show us that Jesus is now put, making good on all the inauguration promises God made from the Old Testament till now. He's letting us know everything I said I was going to do, I am doing in Jesus. And the people are becoming witnesses to that. And as a matter of fact, if you were to study all of Luke 70, you see that Jesus is coming from Capernaum. It's about 30 miles away. It's a one or two day journey. 
That is to say that Jesus left for Nain before the boy even died. God was on his way providentially to serve her, love her, and restore her before her son even died. He had a purpose to bring that boy back. That alone should be a word for somebody today. That God in his absolute sovereignty, in his absolute love, in his perfect timing, has worked everything out in your tragedy for his glory and your joy, if you will but trust him. If you will but lean into the reality that Jesus is Lord over both life and death. This is the first place in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is called Lord. And Luke is showing us that everything that Jesus said in Luke 4 when he reads the scroll and he talks about the spirit of the Lord is upon him is coming to fruition in his Messiah, which is Jesus. And he comes in compassion upon her. Don't miss that because we tend to read all our theology books and talk about how God had to do certain things to, to, to bring about his reign and to save. And we forget that God had emotion when he did it. He didn't just bring the boy back. He had compassion. The word means to have a stomachache, to be moved in your bowels. You ever see something and it break your heart and your stomach hurts when you see it? Imagine God having that feeling. He says, don't weep. He raises the young man up. And now people are seeing that everything that the Old Testament prophets had pointed to is now here in Jesus Christ. Put it another way, if you are in Jesus today, it is not because you were good or because you were baptized or because you were raised in church. It is because Jesus came along in your death and said to you, young man, young woman, rise. He has given you new life out of your sin. God never knocks on the door of your heart and asks, could he come in? Because it was dead. And so he removes it and puts a new heart in and then gives you faith. If you are in Christ today, it is because this is really your testimony. That you were dead and you are alive and now God says, you belong to me. We are united with him and therefore we don't live out our life the way we want to. That is antithetical to the gospel because God gives us his heart. Now I love what God loves. I go where God wants me to go. And if you like me, you're like most of the time. Because we wrestle with sin, but if you have this new life in Christ, God is moving you to see that everything that the prophets pointed to, everything we're going to unpack in Colossians is not just true about Jesus, but it is about you as well. That's the hardest thing I struggle with in my life is what God says about me. It's kind of easy sometimes to say there's a savior, a king, he died for my sins. It's a whole nother to think of myself as a saint. Especially when I don't feel like I'm performing the way I should. When I feel like I haven't given everything. When I feel like, you know, I've, I, I don't watch the Eagles. Um, you know, <laughs> I don't love my wife the way I should. I don't handle my money the way I should all the time. And sometimes the only thing I have that assures me is that I belong to him is the conviction that I have a Savior who paid for that sin too and caused me to repent and return to him. So Christ is not just showing us who he is. He's also showing us what we're to do. 
He's demonstrating a type of compassion that only God can show, but is not something that, that God had to do. God is completely happy and good by himself, all by himself. In the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, there is no need, there is no lack. So in order for God to feel compassion when he sees someone's story, when he sees someone weeping, when he sees someone hurt, he has to choose to become vulnerable enough to be afflicted with their situation. In other words, compassion from God is a result of God condescending down to our level, seeing where we are, and, and look what he did in Christ. He was crushed. He was crushed by our sin. He suffered. No other religion in the world can proclaim a God like this. Every other religion says, work your way and get up to me. Whether it's secularism, whether it's Islam, whether it's Hebrew Israelites, nationalism, pick whatever way of thought you want. Nothing says, I will come down and lift you up like Jesus. And the shame of the modern church is where we try to take that and co-opt to it. I will have Jesus and my race, Jesus and my politics, Jesus and my other offshoots of other religions that I just mix with this. God help us when we miss the simple and pure message of the gospel, that God gives life to the dead and he loves to restore broken people and uses them to be restorers in the culture. And so if we would serve our city and our neighborhood well, we are called to give a type of Christ-centered compassion that people can see it and feel it and it speaks and smells of Christ. But when you forget where you come from, it's really easy not to do that. It's really easy to come in Sunday in and Sunday out and ride the hamster wheel of conventional worship and it never make a difference out there. Um, Jim Cimbala is a pastor in Brooklyn, Brooklyn Tabernacle Baptist Church. And he tells this story, and I love it. He said he preached the Easter service one day. And they have so many homeless people that come to service. But this one particular Easter, he preached, and he's talking to people after service. And he said there was a man near him who he smelled before he saw him. And that's bad if you could smell him before you see him. He said you could smell like feces and urine. And he turns and sees this man named David. He'd been coming to church for a couple weeks. His clothes are crusted. His pants, you can tell, were soiled and dried and soiled and dried and soiled. He hadn't shaved. He hadn't brushed. So now you have body odor, and you have the breath of a man who hasn't brushed and God knows how long. And he's approaching Pastor Assembler, who's talking to other people, so his assumption is the man just wants some money. So without even acknowledging David, he goes in his pocket, takes out his billfold, and presses some money towards the homeless man. And the homeless man says, I don't want any money. I've been in the street so long, I think if nothing changes, I'm going to die, and I want the Jesus that you talk about. And in that moment, Symbola says the Holy Spirit convicted his heart so bad and told him, if you don't learn to love this smell, I can never use you. Because all of us, when we came to Christ, had that smell. All of us, when we came to Christ, had that stench. All of us, when we came to Christ, had those stains on us from all the works we ever did to try to make ourselves right with God and utterly failed. And what did he do? He hugged us in it. And if you're ever going to make a difference for Christ, you've got to love that smell. 
You've got to be able to go into the streets and see where there is a spiritual stench. It might not even be in the street. It might be in your home, your family members, your job. And God says, by my spirit, you will smell it and love it. Because where that is, that is an opportunity for the gospel. That is where God does his best work. But too often we want to be around other people who are clean just like us. What's the point of that? We want to get out and we want to see God glorified. Amen. We want to see the Davids of the world come into the church, but we got to be able to deal with people who are not like us. Just like Christ dealt with people who by nature will not like God. Because we are messed up, jacked up, and tore up. If I was in a black church, I'd say tore up from the floor up. But you all, I just say tore up, and you're like, I got you. There we go. We are tore up and dysfunctional on our best day. And yet we're called to make much of Christ in a way that causes people to be jubilant when they experience God's compassion. Think about it this way. What if next month our church doubled in size? Just revival broke out and people come in and you've got extroverts and introverts. You've got Eagles fans and Patriot fans. And, and, and everybody comes in, right? People who have been in church before, people who are brand new Christians. You got people who are liberal, people who are conservative. You got everything in between. Two or three months from now, who would you be spending most of your time with? Would you just be around the people who are like you? If you're an introvert, would you just be around the introverts? If you're a liberal, would you just be around the liberals who care about justice? Or if you're a conservative, would you just be around the conservatives who care about doctrine? Or would you be around the people who need you the most? The answer to that tells you where your God is or where your idol is. Because if God can send them in, but you will drive them out, you're not really walking in his spirit and his grace. And we all have to fight with that. And that's why we look to Christ's model. What did Jesus do? He sat and ate dinner with the bigot, the tax collector. The people you would like the least is who Jesus would sit with the most. That is the call to us to go in that same vulnerability, that same excitement to see God work among the least and the lowest among us. That is what God is calling us to do. That is what God is empowering us to do. That is what he has given us life to do, to make much of the miracle of salvation and union with Jesus Christ. We got to remember three words, and I'll be almost done after that. Three words to bring the power of Christ-centered compassion to our community. See, feel, and do. If we can just be in a cycle of seeing, feeling, and doing, God is working in those steps. See, first you've got to be able to see what's going on. You've got to be able to see people for where they are. You've got to look beyond the issues that you see in people's life and how much they irk you and see if there's a spiritual need and a spiritual issue right there. Some of the people that irk you the most might be irking you because God is pricking you to love on them. I'm saying it now because I'm kind of preaching to myself. I have some people in my life and in my job that are just perpetual enemies, if I'm honest. And I'm constantly reminded to pray for them. And sometimes they're imprecatory prayers. The conservatives know what I'm saying. Um, sometimes they're ratchet prayers. The liberals know what I'm saying. So, but, but God in that is teaching me to be patient and to trust them. And it's not easy. And, and, and what shows me my need for grace is how often I fail to be faithful in doing that. How often all it takes is a disagreement for me to just turn away from somebody. 
And if you're like me and you've got church hurt, you are quick to be up in arms in church. Let's be honest. I know this is like the nicest church I've ever gone to, but like all it takes is like, like Rob could be like, hey, I want to talk to you. And I'm like, I'm done. Like not leaving. But trauma can so condition you that you see everything through the lens of your own hurt. And it can so easily distort reality that no one ever gets in and nothing ever gets out. And that's why we need the gospel, to know that God is working on the place that you don't talk about and the place that people can't touch because it hurts. That's what God is working in today. And where does he do it? By his spirit in the church. You will never grow in isolation. You will never grow in a meaningful way at home watching YouTube. And, and you can come and still miss out on it by being isolated. And I know the introverts are like, I'm hating that. I understand. I don't care as much, but I understand. Um, <laughs> God has given us a church as a blessing and a means of his grace. He's given us elders to care for us and watch over our souls. You need this because that stuff inside of you, there is an enemy that has convinced you that the bad is good and that the toxic is praiseworthy. And God in his compassion is making life difficult enough for you to hate what he already hates. He's making it difficult enough for you to be sanctified and see his power so it'll overflow in others. When Jesus gives this boy to his mother, what does it say happened? The result in verse 16, fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. The Greek says that fear took hold of them. There was a holy awe in them of God. This is why the church does compassion in a way no one else can ever do. Because the goal of our compassion is just not to see people fed. And watch this, you're gonna call me a heretic for a minute. Our goal is not just to see people saved either. Jesus said make disciples, not converts. Disciples means we've got to live life with people, among people in a vulnerable way where my mess and your mess becomes our mess. It would have been a good amen. <laughs> he calls us in such a way, to such a type of living, that, that, that when we serve people, we don't just say, I want to feed the homeless. We don't just want to preach the homeless. We want to see people live the way God designed them to be. If it's the single mother who we're feeding, our goal is to see her healed, from what has caused this if she's a widow, but then we also want to help her heal so she can be married again. We want to see people who had issues in their childhood because the absence of a father come up in such a way that we love them and walk with them and we provide more than just outings and places to hang out, but we provide love and counsel and the love of God working through us in words and affirmation to them in such a way where they become the father they never had. This is a hard work, and it is impossible outside of Christ. We can go out and make disciples of our laws, and they never know Jesus. But if the Lord is working in us, it happens. It happens slowly and over time. And they'll say, God has visited his people. You know what it means when I said that? They were looking for someone who would come and restore everything. Some of this visitation, if you read earlier in Luke, they're saying Christ is that restorer. And so what do we do in our seeing and our doing and our feeling? Here's what you do. Don't discipline yourself to do more. Press into Christ so you worship better. 
Because where worship grows, you will spread Jesus' love everywhere. When you see the worth of the one who died for you and still loves you, although he knows your thoughts, your actions, your words, and your deeds, it will push you out there to love people in hard paces. Amen? Amen. I'll close on this. I, I took my daughter on a ride before she went to college this year. She's in Spelman now. And I, we drove from probably South Philly all the way through Kensington. Down every block where there was tents, drugs, everything. And I told my daughter, if you go off to Spelman, you graduate and you have a great life, get all the money, accolades, career, and if this out here means nothing to you, you failed completely. Now let's temper that. If you come back and do something about all this and it's not in Jesus' name, you fail. Because she needs to understand just like we need to understand. Real change and restoration is found only in Christ. There are lots of good things people can do, but restoration comes through God's Messiah. It comes from Christ who alone is Lord over both life and death who we are called to serve among the least and the lowest places in a way that brings jubilant praise to Jesus. May God give us a heart and a hand to accomplish this in our time. Let's pray. Lord, we bow our hearts in your presence. You are Lord, you are God, and you are good. Forgive us in the times that we turn either a blind eye or we make ourselves unavailable due to the busyness of life. Lord, if the truth were to be told, sometimes our greatest sin is that we're just too busy. Sometimes our greatest sin is that we're just not available in our imagination to think about what you might be doing around us or in us, in our communities, in our home. I pray, God, that you would make Grace City of the Northeast a redemption warehouse, Lord, where people would come and receive and see and savor Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would work in all of us to mature us in such a way that we are bold to talk about Christ and we are bold to repent and live in such a lifestyle that brings worship to you and glory to your power, Lord. And I pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know you as Savior, that you would so let them, so let them see that in their deadness you have power to call them to arise. Put it in their heart to call to you in faith, Lord. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.